8. Even while carrying up the adjoining work the ladder should be racked back, i.e. left in steps as shown in figure 7, and not carried up vertically with nearly the two things necessary for the bond. Buildings in exposed situations are frequently built with cavity walls, consisting of the inside or main walls with an outer skin usually half a brick thick, separated from the former by a cavity of 2 or 3 inches figure 2. The two walls are tied together at frequent intervals by iron or stoneware ties, each having a bend or twist in the center, which prevents the transmission of water to the inner wall. All water, therefore, which penetrates the outer wall drops to the base of the cavity, and trickles out through gratings provided for the purpose a few inches above the ground level. The base of the cavity should be taken down a course or two below the level of the damp-proof course. The ties are placed about three feet apart horizontally. With 12 or 18 inches vertical intervals, they are about 8 inches long and 3-4 inches wide. It is considered preferable by some architects and builders to place the thicker wall on the outside. This course, however, allows the main wall to be attacked by the weather, whereas the former method provides for its protection by a screen of brickwork, where door and window frames occur in hollow walls. It is of the utmost importance that a proper lead or other flashing be built in shape so as to throw off on each side clear of the frames and main wall, the water which may penetrate the outer shell. While building the wall it is very essential to ensure that the cavity and ties be kept clean and free from rubbish or mortar, and for this purpose a wisp of straw or a narrow board, is laid on the ties where the bricklayer is working, to catch any material that may be inadvertently dropped. This protection being raised as the work proceeds, a hollow wall tends to keep the building dry internally and the temperature equable but it has the disadvantage of harboring vermin, and less care be taken to ensure their exclusion. The top of the wall is usually sealed with brickwork to prevent vermin or rubbish finding its way into the cavity. Air gratings should be introduced here to allow air circulating through the cavity, they also facilitate drying out after rain. Hollow walls are not much used in London for two reasons, the first being that, owing to the protection from the weather afforded by surrounding buildings, one of the main reasons for their use is gone and the other that the expense is greatly increased, owing to the authorities ignoring the outer shell and requiring the main wall to be of the full thickness stipulated in Schedule I of London Building Act 1894. Many English provincial authorities in determining the thickness of a cavity wall, take the outer portion into consideration. In London and the surrounding counties, brickwork is measured by the rod of 161 2 feet square, 11 2 bricks in thickness. A rod of brickwork gauged for courses to a foot with bricks 83 4 inches long, 41 4 inches wide, and 23 4 in thick, and joints 1 4 inches in thickness, will require 43 56 bricks, and the number will vary as the bricks are above or below the average size, and as the joints are made thinner or thicker, the quantity of mortar, also, will evidently be affected by the latter consideration, but in London it is generally reckoned at 50 cub. Fort for a 1 4 inches joint, 272 cub, fort for a joint 3 8 inches thick, to these figures must be added in allowance of about 11 cub, fort if the bricks are formed with frogs or hollows, bricks weigh about 7 pounds each, they are bought and sold by the thousand, which quantity weighs about 62 cwd, the weight of a rod of brickwork is 131 to 15 tons, work in cement mortar being heavier than that executed in lime. Seven bricks are required to face a square feet, one foot of reduced brickwork eleven two bricks thick will require sixteen bricks. The number of bricks laid by a workman in a day of eight hours varies considerably with the description of work. 
but on straight walling a man will lay on average of 500 in a day. The absorbent properties of bricks vary considerably with the kind of brick. The ordinary London stock of good quality should not have absorbed, after 24 hours soaking, more than one-fifth of its bulk. Inferior bricks will absorb as much as a third. The Romans were great users of bricks, both burnt and sun-dried. At the decline of the Roman Empire, the art of brick-making fell into disuse. But after the lapse of some centuries it was revived, and the ancient architecture of Italy shows many fine examples of brick and terracotta work. The scarcity of stone in the Netherlands led to the development of a brick architecture, and fine examples of brickwork abound in the Low Countries. The Romans seem to have introduced brickmaking into England, and specimens of the large thin bricks, which they used chiefly as a bond for rebel masonry, may be seen in the many remains of Roman buildings scattered about that country. During the reigns of the early Tudor kings the art of brickmaking arrived at great perfection and some of the finest known specimens of ornamental brickwork are to be found among the work of this period. The rebuilding of London after the Great Fire of 1666 gave considerable impetus to brickmaking, most of the new buildings being of brick, and a statute was passed regulating the number of bricks in the thickness of the walls of the several rates of dwelling houses. The many names given to the different qualities of bricks in various parts of Great Britain are most confusing, but the following are those generally in use, stocks, hard, Sound, well-burnt bricks, used for all ordinary purposes, hard stocks, sound but overburnt, used in footings to walls and other positions where good appearance is not required, shippers, sound, hard-burnt bricks of imperfect shape, obtain their name from being much used as ballast for ships, rubbers or cutters, sandy in composition and suitable for cutting with a wire saw and rubbing to shape on the stone slab, grizzles, sound and of fair shape, but underburnt used for inferior work, and in cases where they are not liable to be heavily loaded, place bricks, underburnt and defective, used for temporary work, chops, cracked and defective in shape and badly burnt, V.04P.0523 burrs, lumps which have vitrified or run together in the burning, used for rough walling, garden work, and C. Pressed bricks, molded under hydraulic pressure, and much used for facing work. They usually have a deep frog or hollow on one or both horizontal faces, which reduces the weight of the brick and forms an excellent key for the mortar. Blue bricks, chiefly made in South Staffordshire and North Wales, they are used in engineering work, and where great compressional resistance is needed, as they are vitrified throughout. Hard, heavy, impervious and very durable, blue bricks of special shape may be had for paving, channeling and coping. Fire bricks, withstanding great heat. Used in connection with furnaces, they should always be laid with fire clay in place of lime or cement mortar. Glazed bricks, either salt glazed or enameled, the former, brown in color, are glazed by throwing salt on the bricks in the kiln. The latter are dipped into a slit of the required color before being burnt, and are used for decorative and sanitary purposes, and where reflected light is required. Molded bricks, for cornices, string courses, plinths, labels and copings. They are made in the different classes to many patterns, and on account of their greater durability, and the saving of the labor of cutting, are preferable in many cases to rubbers, for sewer work and arches, bricks shaped as voussoirs are supplied, the strength of brickwork varies very considerably according to the kind of brick used, the position in which it is used, the kind and quality of the lime or cement mortar, and above all the quality of the workmanship. 
the results of experiments with short walls carried out in 1896-1897 by the Royal Institute of British Architects to determine the average loads per square feet at which crushing took place, may be briefly summarized as follows. Stock brickwork in lime mortar crushed under a pressure of 18.63 tons per square feet and in cement mortar under 39.29 tons per square feet called brickwork in lime mortar crushed at 31.14 tons, and in cement mortar at 51.34 tons, flattened brickwork in lime crushed under a load of 30.68 tons, in cement under 56.25 tons. Luster red brickwork in lime mortar crushed at 45.36 tons per square feet in cement mortar at 83.36 tons. Staffordshire blue brickwork in lime mortar crushed at 114.34 tons, and in cement mortar at 135.43 tons. The height of a brick pier should not exceed 12 times its least width. The London Building Act in the first schedule prescribes that in buildings not public, or of the warehouse class. In no story shall any external or party walls exceed in height 16 times the thickness. In buildings of the warehouse class, the height of these walls shall not exceed 14 times the thickness. In exposed situations it is necessary to strengthen the buildings by increasing the thickness of walls and parapets, and to provide heavier copings and flashings. Special precautions, too, must be observed in the fixing of copings, chimney pots, ridges and hips. The greatest wind pressure experienced in England may be taken at 56 pounds on a square feet but this is only in the most exposed positions in the country or on a seafront. 40 pounds is a sufficient allowance in most cases, and where there is protection by surrounding trees or buildings 28 pounds per square feet is all that needs to be provided against. In mixing mortar, particular attention must be paid to the sand with which the lime or cement is mixed. The best sand is that obtained from the pit, being sharp and angular. If island however, liable to be mixed with clay or earth, which must be washed away before the sand is used, gravel found mixed with it must be removed by screening or sifting, river sand is frequently used, but is not so good as pit sand on account of the particles being rubbed smooth by attrition, sea sand is objectionable for two reasons, it cannot be altogether freed from a saline taint, and if it is used the salt attracts moisture and is liable to keep the brickwork permanently damp, the particles, moreover, are generally rounded by attrition, caused by the movement of the sea, which makes it less efficient for mortar than if they retain their original angular forms. Blue or black mortar, often used for pwanding the joints of external brickwork on account of its greater durability, is made by using foundry sand or smith's ashes instead of ordinary sand. There are many other substitutes for the ordinary sand. As an example, fine stone grit may be used with advantage. Thoroughly burnt clay or ballast, old bricks, clinkers and cinders, ground to a uniform size and screened from dust, also make excellent substitutes, fat limes that island limes which are pure, as opposed to hydraulic limes which are burnt from limestone containing some clay should not be used for mortar, they are slow setting, and there is a liability for some of the mortar, where there is not a free access of air to assist the setting, remaining soft for some considerable period, often months, thus causing an equal settlement and possibly failure. Gray stone lime is feebly hydraulic, and makes a good mortar for ordinary work. It, however, decays under the influence of the weather, and if island therefore, advisable to point the external face of the work in blue ash or cement mortar, in order to obtain greater durability. It should never be used in foundation work, or where exposed to a wet, oil lime is hydraulic, that island it will set firm under water. 
it should be used in all good class work, where Portland cement is not desired, of the various cements used in building, it is necessary only to mention three as being applicable to use for mortar, the first of these is Portland cement, which has sprung into very general use, not only for work where extra strength and durability are required, and for underground work, but also in general building where a small extra cost is not objected to. Ordinary lime mortar may have its strength considerably enhanced by the addition of a small proportion of Portland cement. Roman cement is rarely used for mortar, but is full in some cases on account of the rapidity with which it sets, usually becoming hard about 15 minutes after mixing. It is full in tidal work and embankments, and constructions underwater. It has about one-third of the strength of Portland cement, by which it is now almost entirely supplanted. Selenitic cement or lime. Invented by Major General H.Y.D. Scott 1820-1883, is his line, to which a small proportion of plaster of Paris has been added with the object of suppressing the action of slaking and inducing quicker setting, if carefully mixed in accordance with the instructions issued by the manufacturers, it will take a much larger proportion of sand than ordinary lime, lime should be slaked before being made into mortar, the lime is measured out, deposited in a heap on a wooden, bank, or platform and after being well watered is covered with the correct proportion of sand. This retains the heat and moisture necessary to thorough slaking. The time required for this operation depends on the variety of the lime, but usually it is from a few hours to a one and a half days. If the mixing is to be done by hand the materials must be screened to remove any unslacked lumps of lime. The occurrence of these may be prevented by grinding the lime shortly before use. The mass should then be well, larried i.e. mixed together with the aid of a long-handled rake called the larry. Lime mortar should be tempered for at least two days, roughly covered up with sacks or other material. Before being used it must be again turned over and while mixed together, Portland and Roman cement mortars must be mixed as required on account of their quick-setting properties. In the case of Portland cement mortar, a quantity sufficient only for the day's use should be knocked up, but with Roman cement fresh mixtures must be made several times a day as near as possible to the place of using. Cement mortars should never be worked up after setting has taken place. Care should be taken to obtain the proper consistency, which is a stiff paste. If the mortar be too thick, extra labor is involved in its use, and much time wasted. If it be so thin as to run easily from the trowel, a longer time is taken in setting, and the wall is liable to settle. Also there is danger that the lime or cement will be killed by the excessive water or at least have its binding power affected. It is not advisable to carry out work when the temperature is below freezing point, but in urgent cases bricklaying may be successfully done by using unslacked lime mortar. The mortar must be prepared in small quantities immediately before being used, so that binding action takes place before it cools. When the wall is left at night time the top course should be covered up to prevent the penetration of rain into the work, which would then be destroyed by the action of frost. Bricks used during frosty weather should be quite dry, and those that have been exposed to a rain or frost should never be employed. The question whether there is any limit to bricklayers' work in frost is still an open one. Among the members of the Norwegian Society of Engineers and Architects, at whose meetings the subject has been frequently discussed, that limit is variously estimated at between 6 degrees to 8 degrees Remur 181 to degrees to 14 degrees Thur and 12 degrees to 15 degrees remover 5 degrees above to 13 4 degrees below zero fire. It has been proved by hydraulic tests that good bricklayers work can be executed at the latter minimum.
The conviction is held that the variations in the opinions held on this subject are attributable to the degree of care bestowed on the preparation of the mortar. It is generally agreed, however, that from a practical point of view, bricklaying should not be carried on at temperatures lower than 8 degrees to 10 degrees rim or 14 degrees to 91 to degrees far. For as the thermometer falls the expense of building is greatly increased, owing to a larger proportion of lime being required. For gray lime mortar the usual proportion is one part of lime to two or three parts of sand, or as lime mortar is mixed in similar proportions, except for work below ground, when equal quantities of lime and sand should be used. Portland cement mortar is usually in the proportions of one to three, or five, of sand. Good results are obtained with lime mortar fortified with cement as follows, one part slaked lime, one part Portland cement, and seven parts sand. Roman cement mortar should consist of one or one and a half parts of cement to one part of sand. Selenitic lime mortar is usually in the proportions of one to four or five, and must be mixed in a particular manner, the lime being first ground in water in the mortar mill, and the sand gradually added. Blue or black mortar contains equal parts of foundry ashes and lime, but is improved by the addition of a proportion of cement. For setting fire bricks fire clay is always used. Pargeting for rendering inside chimney flues is made of one part of lime with three parts of cow dung free from straw or litter. No efficient substitute has been found for this mixture, which should be used fresh. A mortar that has found approval for tall chimney shafts is composed by grinding in a mortar mill one part of blue oil lime with one part each of sand and foundry ashes. In the external walls of the Albert Hall the mortar used was one part Portland cement, one part Grayburn lime and six parts pit sand. The lime was slaked 24 hours, and after being mixed B.04P.0524 with the sand for 10 minutes the cement was added and the whole ground for 1 minute, the stuff was prepared in quantities only sufficient for immediate use. The bylaws dated 1891, made by the London County Council under Section 16 of the Metropolis Management and Building Acts Amendment Act 1878, require the proportions of lime mortar to be 1 to 3 of sand or grit and for cement mortar 1 to 4. Clean soft water only should be used for the purpose of making mortar. Grout is thin liquid mortar, and is legitimately used in gauged arches and other work when fine joints are desired. In ordinary work it is sometimes used every four or five courses to fill up any spaces that may have been inadvertently left between the bricks. This at the best is but doing with grout what should be done with mortar in the operation of laying the bricks, and filling or flushing up every course with mortar requires but little additional exertion and is far preferable. The use of grout island therefore, a sign of inefficient workmanship, and should not be countenanced in good work. It is liable, moreover, to ooze out and stain the face of the brickwork. Lime putty is pure slaked lime. It is prepared or run, as it is termed, in a wooden tub or bin and should be made as long a time as possible before being used, at least three weeks should elapse between preparation and use. The pwanding of a wall, as previously mentioned, is done either with the bricklaying or at the completion of the work. If the pwanding is to be of the same order as the rest of the work, it would probably greatly facilitate matters to finish off the work at one operation with the bricklaying, but where, as in many cases, the pwanding is required to be executed in a more durable mortar. This would be done as the scaffold is taken down at the completion of the building, the joints being raked out by the bricklayer to a depth of 1 2 or 3 4 in. By the latter method the whole face of the work is kept uniform in appearance. The different forms of joints in general use are clearly shown in figure 3. 
flat or flush joints are formed by pressing the protruding mortar back flush with the face of the brickwork. This joint is commonly used for walls intended to be coated with distemper or limelight. The flat joint jointed two forms. B and C is a development of the flush joint. In order to increase the density and thereby enhance the durability of the mortar, a semicircular groove is formed along the center, or one on each side of the joint, with an iron jointer and straight edge. Another form, rarely used, is the keyed joint shown at D. The whole width of the joint in this case being treated with the curved key, struck or beveled, or weathered. Joints have the upper portion pressed back with the trowel to form a sloping surface, which throws off the wet. The lower edge is cut off with the trowel to a straight edge. This joint is in very common use for new work. Ignorant workmen frequently make the slope in the opposite direction after thus forming a ledge on the brick. This catches the water, which on being frozen rapidly causes the disintegration of the upper portion of the brick and of the joint itself. With recessed joining, not much used, a deep shadow may be obtained. This form of joint, illustrated in G is open to very serious objections for it encourages the soaking of the brick with rain instead of throwing off the wet, as it seems the natural function of good plumbing, and this, besides causing undue dampness in the wall, renders it liable to damage by frost. It also leaves the arises of the bricks unprotected and liable to be damaged, and from its deep recessed form does not make for stability in the work. Gauged work has very thin joints, as shown at H formed by dipping the side of the brick in white lime putty. The sketch I shows a joint raked out and filled in with plumbing mortar to form a flush joint, or it may be finished in any of the preceding forms. Where the wall is to be plastered the joints are either left open or raked out, or the superfluous mortar may be left protruding as shown at J. By either method an excellent key is obtained, to which the rendering firmly adheres. In cut plumbing K the joints are raked out and stopped, i.e. filled in flush with mortar colored to match the brickwork. The face of the wall is then rubbed over with a soft brick of the same color, or the work may be colored with pigment. A narrow groove is then cut in the joints, and the mortar allowed to set. White line putty is next filled into the groove, being pressed on with a joining tool, leaving a white joint 1/8 to 1/4 inches wide, and with a projection of about 1/16 inches beyond the face of the work. This method is not a good or a durable one, and should only be adopted in old work when the edges of the bricks are broken or irregular. In bastard cut plumbing L the ridge, instead of being in white line putty, is formed of the stopping mortar itself. Footings, as will be seen on reference to figure 1, are the wide courses of brickwork at the base or foot of a wall. They serve to spread the pressure over a larger area of ground. Offsets 21 4 inches wide being made on each side of the wall until a width equal to double the thickness of the wall is reached. Thus in a wall 131 2 inches 11 2 bricks thick. This bottom course would be 2 feet 3 inches 3 bricks wide. It is preferable for greater strength to double the lowest course. The foundation bed of concrete then spreading out an additional 6 inches on each side brings the width of the surface bearing on the ground to 3 feet 3 in. The London Building Act requires the projection of concrete on each side of the brickwork to be only 4 inches but a projection of 6 inches is generally made to allow for easy working. Footings should be built with hard bricks laid principally as headers. Stretchers, if necessary, should be placed in the middle of the wall. Bond in brickwork is the arrangement by which the bricks of every course cover the joints of those in the course below it, and so tend to make the whole mass or combination of bricks act as much together, or as dependently one upon another, as possible. The workmen should be strictly supervised as they proceed with the work, for many failures are due to their ignorance or carelessness in this particular. 
The object of bonding will be understood by reference to figure 4. Here it is evident from the arrangement of the bricks that any weight placed on the topmost brick is carried down and borne alike in every course, in this way the weight on each brick is distributed over an area increasing with every course, but this forms a longitudinal bond only, which cannot extend its influence beyond the width of the brick, and a wall of one brick and a half, or two bricks, thick, built in this manner, would in effect consist of three or four half brick thick walls acting independently of each other. If the bricks were turned so as to show their short sides or ends in front instead of their long ones, certainly a compact wall of a whole brick thick, instead of half a brick, would be produced, and while the thickness of the wall would be double, the longitudinal bond would be shortened by one half, a wall of any great thickness built in this manner would necessarily be composed of so many independent one brick walls, to produce a transverse and yet preserve a true longitudinal bond. The bricks are laid in a definite arrangement of stretchers and headers. Illustration, Figure 5, English Bond. In this and following illustration of bond in brickwork the position of bricks in the second course is indicated by dotted lines. In English Bond, Figure 5, rightly considered the most perfect in use, the bricks are laid in alternate courses of headers and stretchers, thus combining the advantages of the two previous modes of arrangement. A reference to figure 5 will show how the process of bonding is pursued in a wall one and a half bricks in thickness, and how the coins are formed, in walls which are a multiple of a whole brick. The appearance of the same course is similar on the elevations of the front and back faces, but in walls where a not half brick must be used to make up the thickness, as is the case in the illustration, the appearance of the opposite sides of a course is inverted. The example illustrates the principle of English bond. Thicker walls are constructed in the same manner by an extension of the same methods. It will be observed that portions of a brick have to be inserted near a vertical end or a climb, in order to start the regular bond. These portions equal a half header in width, and are called queen closers. They are placed next to the first header. A three-quarter brick is obviously as available for this purpose as a header and closer combined, but the latter method is preferred because by the use of a uniformity of appearance is preserved and whole bricks are retained on the returns. Conclosers are used at rebate openings formed in walls in Flemish bond, and by reason of the greater width of the back or tail, add strength to the work. They are cut on this place so that the front end is half the width of a header and one side half the length of the brick. An example of their use will be seen in figure 15. In walls of almost all thicknesses above 9 inches except in the V.04P.0525 English bond, to preserve the transverse and yet not destroy the longitudinal bond, it is frequently necessary to use half bricks. It may be taken as a general rule that a brick should never be cut if it can be worked in whole, for a new joint is thereby created in a construction, the difficulty of which consists in obviating the debility arising from the constant recurrence of joints. Great insistence must be laid on this point, especially at the junctions of walls where the admission of closers already constitutes a weakness which would only be increased by the use of other bats or fragments of bricks. Another method of bonding brickwork, instead of placing the bricks in alternate courses of headers and stretchers, places them alternately as headers and stretchers in the same course, the appearance of the course being the same on each face. This is called, Flemish bond. Closers are necessary to this variety of bond. From figure 6 it will be seen that, Owing to the comparative weakness of the transverse tie, and the numbers of half bricks required to be used and the thereby increased number of joints, this bond is not so perfect nor so strong as English. The arrangements of the face joints, however, 
presenting in Flemish bond a neater appearance than an English bond. It is generally selected for the external walls of domestic and other buildings where good effect is desirable, in buildings erected for manufacturing and similar purposes, and in engineering works where the greatest degree of strength and compactness is considered of the highest importance. English bonds should have the preference. A compromise is sometimes made between the two above-mentioned bonds. For the sake of appearance the bricks are laid to form Flemish bond on the face, while the backing is of English bond, the object being to combine the best features of the two bonds. Undoubtedly the result is an improvement on Flemish bond, obviating as it does the use of bats in the interior of the wall. This method of bonding is termed, single Flemish bond, and is shown in figure 7, in stretching bond, which should only be used for walls half a brick in thickness. All the bricks are laid as stretchers a half brick being used in alternate courses to start the bond, in work curved too sharply on plan to admit of the use of stretchers, and for footings, projecting moldings and corbels, the bricks are all laid as headers, i.e. with their ends to the front, and their length across the thickness of the wall, this is termed, heading bond, in thick walls, three bricks thick and upwards, a saving of labor is effected without loss of strength, by the adoption of, herring bone, or, diagonal bond, in the interior of the wall, the outer faces of the wall being built in English and Flemish bond. This mode should not be had recourse to for walls of a less thickness than 27 inches even that being almost too thin to admit of any great advantage from it. Hoop iron, about 11 to inches wide and 1 16 inches thick, either galvanized or well tarred and sanded to a retard rusting, is used in order to obtain additional longitudinal tie. The customary practice is to use one strip of iron for each half brick in thickness of the wall. Joints at the angles, and where necessary in the length, are formed by bending the ends of the strips so as to hook together. A patent stabbed iron now on the market is perforated to provide a key for the mortar. A difficulty often arises in bonding when facing work with bricks of a slightly different size from those used in backing, as it is technically termed, as an island of course, necessary to keep all brickwork in properly leveled courses. A difference has to be made in the thickness of the mortar joints. Apart from the extra labor involved, this obviously is detrimental to the stability of the wall, and is apt to produce an equal settlement and cracking. Too much care cannot be taken to obtain both facing and backing bricks of equal size. Dishonest brickle.